0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential One Hundred Bible Study, also known as E One Hundred, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through fifty Old Testament and fifty New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word.
1: So, our passage again. We're going to start in Joshua five thirteen, and We're just going to go, we're going to go at less of a brisk pace this week through the fall of Jericho so we can kind of imagine what it's like to be in the moment. Um, Did anybody read this passage in advance of of coming in here? Okay. So you came armed with difficult questions? That's good. Um, Let's go ahead and start and we're going to start and just go uh, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5. And I'm going to read those for us. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So a couple thoughts uh, about this. First of all, let's back up and look at where they're going. They're approaching Jericho, right? Have you all been following Joshua so far up to you know what Jericho is and why they've been looking at it? In the E100, we skip chapter two of Joshua, which actually tells a little bit of the background story behind Jericho. But in Joshua chapter two, there was, uh, and unfortunately she will forever be known as a prostitute, but Rahab, the prostitute, I hope I'm remembered better, Um, but she, um, you know, Joshua sent spies into Jericho. I'm giving you like the short version of this. Rahab harbored the spies, um, the Israelite spies. The authorities came looking for them. She lied and told them that they had left already, right? And then she helped them escape Jericho. We're on the same page, right, so far. Um, And Jericho is an important city for them for several reasons. One, It was a heavily fortified city uh, and it was long occupied. We know from the archeological records that Jericho was a a prominent city and a well-fortified city, just as which confirmed the biblical records. Um, Two, as as we heard last week from Father Chris, they had crossed the Jordan, right? And so typically when you're thinking militarily, you you don't pass an enemy encampment and continue on an invasion without first dealing with what you're passing and why would you not do that why is it important to you know take things as you as you progress right I mean that's kind of an obvious way anybody want to shout out why that would be a good idea to deal with the enemy as you you know as you are progressing into their territory rather than sneaking around them yeah so they don't get right I mean it's a very common-sense thing you don't want to be caught in the middle right I mean that's that's kind of you know. That's even personal self-defense, one-on-one, right? If you're attacked by more than one person, right, you make sure that you keep one of them in front of you and in between you and the other people. You don't want to get surrounded. Um, so they have to deal to progress. They have to deal with Jericho. What's the problem with Jericho? Why is why is that an issue? Why could that be uh, conceivably be a difficulty? Do you think? I mean, what do we know about Jericho? It's a fortified, well-armed city. It's a fortified, well-armed city. Um, And a long siege, right? You would think that a long siege would be necessary. And this is difficult because, one, Joshua has a lot of military experience coming into this endeavor. However, how many fortified cities have they taken so far? None. What weapons do they have to attack fortified cities? None. They don't have siege rams or battering rams or catapults or moving towers, right? They have sticks and stones. Um, You know, they have spears, they have slings, they have arrows, but if you've ever seen the movie Troy or know anything about your military history, you you need to either be prepared for a long siege in order to try to starve them out, right, or you need to have weapons capable of dealing with them. Well, they also don't have a supply chain coming to them from a hometown, right? There's not a carav- you know there's not an unbroken caravan of goods that can keep them well supplied as they sit outside of Jericho and they're in you know they're in foreign land. you don't camp outside with no friends around in foreign land you know for an extended period of time because guess what they'll summon their buddies. you all follow me so far this is, this is a it's actually a really ugly situation to look at that they're in, but it's a necessary thing for them to go through um, and so it's a really, coming up to the city, that's, I mean, that's really the only background I'm going to give you. They know what they're in for, and, but they know what God's call is for them, and they're pursuing it anyway. That's what we would call courage, right? I mean, knowing that life is difficult, but facing it with your eyes wide open. Um, that's exactly what they're doing, and, and trusting in God and doing so. And so that brings us here to verses 13 through 15. Uh, Joshua runs into what it says is a man, right? Right? Uh, now, this is another one of those theophanies, right? Like, what, who, is this? who is this? Who is this, right? Um, I think in later Chris, Christian conception of this, which is, none of this is definitive, by the way, um, we tend to think of this as Christians as being maybe Michael, right? Michael the archangel, St. Michael, who we, you know, who we consider the commander of the Lord's armies. Michael, his name, as you know, Mikael is one who is like God. That's why that's my middle name, right? My first, my first name is Jesus. My second one is one who is like God, and my parents really set me up for pride, but that's why you're, that's why you're all here. Um, so uh, keep me grounded. But um, so, you know, some people think it's Michael, right? The commander of the Lord's armies. Um, some people think that, as we, do you remember our burning bush discussion a little bit about Theophanies and how... Sometimes it's God and sometimes it's, well, if it is God, it's kind of like a representation of God that's also God. It's very confusing, right? It's just, it's not concrete. And, you know, we learned that when we were talking about this ancient Middle Eastern culture is things are not as concrete as we would like to make them. Like in our conversation, for example, about the Egyptian gods, right? It's like, well, the God of the Nile is three gods, but they're distinct, but they're the same, right? It's just like, well, that's frustrating, um, Anyway, so we don't know exactly who this commander of the army of the Lord is. We do know that the Adonai that Joshua uses when he says, my Lord, is not the one that is, that is still saying my Lord and bowing down, but that's not the one that's traditionally specifically used for God. Y'all follow me so far? Um, but that doesn't mean that he knows that, and he might just be kind of guessing. Um, and also... This act of worship, this word for worship, this is important too. True worship is reserved for whom? For God, right? Yet this Hebrew word for worship is one that, that, is, that is generic. It can be just used you know, when approaching somebody who is vastly in a superior position. Y'all follow me so far? So again, none of these context clues help us to figure out exactly who the commander of this army is. But the commander of the, of the army's response is actually really great, right? Uh, Joshua comes up and he gives him you know, kind of a false dichotomy, right? Like, you know, are you option A or B? Are you, are, you, are you with us or against us? And he's basically just like, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, right? Like, which is actually a really good response if you think about it and how we approach God, right? Like, God, are you, you, know, are you with me or against me? It's like, well, you know, as long as you're with me, I'm with you, right? As soon as you oppose me, you're on, You you switched camps. You're flying. You're flying the wrong flag. Y'all follow me so far? I mean, that's that's a very, I mean, that, that's a very typical um, response of God to us, as it should be, right? If you were selling meth out of your basement, it's Florida. You don't have those. Would you want God to be with you in that endeavor? Well, maybe you might want to, but that wouldn't be a very godly thing, right? So again, are you with us or against us? I'm God, right? It's kind of like, oh, well, okay. Um, which is, by the way, something that is really important for us to remember as we draw into the context of a worshiping community, right, is is, um, God is not, Jesus will never be your mascot, ever, right? So to try to take him and have him support your own personal causes or beliefs outside of Scripture is is a bad idea. So, let's continue on. Unless you all, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes? Yes?
0: did he finally claim that the ground was holy. <coughs> that's the other thing that's confusing yeah. to me: the fact here before he had approached this uh, man, the ground presumably was not holy. Yeah, but here he is now; he has created a, a holy, holiness to the ground that he's standing on. <laughs> so that gives you another clue. I think that this. Yeah.
1: It could be an extension of the Lord himself. A messenger of God. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just like the burning bush, right? That's that same scenario. Remember, Moses went to the burning bush. That was the command, was take off your shoes. The ground that you're walking on is holy ground. Um, I, there was a sermon I listened to this past week where the, the preacher said, you know, places aren't holy, people are holy. And I was like, well... Maybe not, right? Like, maybe not. Maybe there are such things as, as sacred spaces, right? I mean, that's... We have a beautiful church. And as we're all in there, you know, as a congregation worshiping together, you know, the true and living God, that becomes a holy and sacred place, right? I mean, it's, you know, in, in that context. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's a good indication, right? This isn't just some guy, right, of some, uh, some different nation. So... Joshua has the proper response, as we all should, uh, when confronted by a heavenly being. He falls on his face. That's that's a good posture. Um, And says, what does my Lord say to his servant? So again, holy ground, Joshua did so. So they're, they're scouting the city, and this is actually a terrifying but really positive sign that God is with them in this endeavor, right? Like, okay, we don't have to do this alone. Like, we're not trying to figure out a military strategy to take the city, because that's just, that's not in the cards. So let's look at, uh, let's move on to chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Everyone straight before him. That's an interesting strategy. Right? Like that's an... That... Lot... Yeah, that requires... It requires an absurd amount of faith. Right? I mean, it really does. Okay, God, so for the next seven days, we're going to be using our rations. Right? We're going to be camped out, exposed. And we're going to walk around the city and blow a trumpet and yell. And we're gonna knock walls down. Um, it's really interesting, right? Because it's not a military, this is not a military strategy, right? This is not a military strategy. This is a ritual ceremony, right? This is, a, this is a pure, purely a ritual ceremony. It's really fun when the hyper-rationalists, which we all have a bit of that in us, come behind and say, well, maybe they're marching around you know, shook up the ground and made the supports of the walls unsteady so that, you know, by the time they gave a shout and blew trumpets, the sound waves blasted against the walls and that with the synchronized... Have you guys seen stuff like this? I think I saw like History Channel or Discovery Channel. Um, I guess I should call it Historicity Channel because I was kind of like... Not sure that's true. But anyway, they they come up with all these ridiculous things and it's... And you imagine, it's kind of like with the... It's kind of like with the... It's actually exactly like with the plagues, right? Where it's like God, you know, it's like how much more explicit could I be that I'm here? Yet we as people always find a way to try to, you know, uh, rationalize how these things could work without God. Uh, It's it's bizarre to me, but people have been trying to figure out how these walls fell. Uh, As and as a brief aside, they did fall. Um, There's been a lot of archaeologists that have been trying to uncover the history of Jericho, but the walls came down. And from about, these are the estimates based on the pottery, but from about 1400 to about 1100 B.C. or B.C.E., that Jericho remained unoccupied. Um, And we find out later in Scripture, actually, that it was rebuilt and what happened to that person. I'll I'll get to that by the end of today. But um, the walls did come down and the city was taken, right? Like that that happened um, remarkably. So... Anyway, God gives him the, uh, the ritual ceremony, and we know this because this is, I mean, we're Episcopalians, like we love processions, right? I mean, we do, like we process, we process in at the beginning of the service, we process out for the gospel, you know, we, we process back after the gospel, and then, you know, I guess technically the term to leave is recess, and then we recess out the door again, right? This, is, this whole ritualistic ceremony thing is actually something that we, we do pretty well. Um, <laughs> We love our processions. So, and and again, the, another indicator is there's a number here that should stick out to you. Seven. Seven, right? Seven's the perfect number. Seven is a is a ritualistic number indicating perfection, um, and so everything is done um, by sevens. So. And also the and also the silence, right? Um, why why the silence? Well. People were, you know, other people have commentated and say, well, the reason they shouted was to make people fearful and run and panic and go into chaos. Probably not. It was probably to declare victory that it happened. Because if you'll notice, again, they were told to... Um Let me find exactly where we are. Um, they, were, they were told to, that there was a period of silence before this. Which, again, if I'm going to make some really bad... Hermeneutic parallels to us. That's actually not why we're quiet before church, but you should be. So, here we are. Um, This is again, this is Yahweh's war, and it's a ceremonial siege. And they're basically just they're basically just ushering in God's presence to do this on their behalf, right? Like that's what this is. This is this basically calling on God. It's not a summoning like you would think of like magicians or anything like that, right? Because this is God prescribed. But they're basically calling God down and declaring his victory. Uh, So let's continue on in verse 6. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard were walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people. Okay, here's where we get to the silence I was pointing to. You shall not shout or make your voice heard Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. This is bizarre, right? I mean, what are, what are, what are your all thoughts about this? Like, have, have there ever been things that God has told you to do or, you know, commands in the Bible that just don't, you have a hard time making sense of, but God has commanded you to do it anyway. And so, you know, you're kind of at that point of being obedient without being able to justify why you're obedient to it to yourself. Y'all, y'all follow me so far? Um, forgiveness, for example, right? Not, not, not forgiveness directed at people that you love, but forgiveness directed at people that have no repentance, no remorse, and you can't stand. That's a hard thing to justify. You could say, well, that makes me feel better about it. Okay, you know, that's, that's one way to justify it. But does that really sit well with you? Probably not. Um, there's one that whenever I counsel a couple who's um, you know, doing premarital work, it's always like, hey, the Bible says, do not even let there be a hint of sexual immorality. And it also says, I think in Hebrews, to keep the marriage bed undefiled. So cut it out. Right? And people are just, and, you know, and everybody's just like, well, I don't, that's not even possible. Or like, you know, like, I don't see why. And it's like, no, like, just because you can't justify something to yourself does not mean that God does not have a very good reason. And in fact, I can give them physiological and psycholo- like, psychological and spiritual reasons for that, which they don't want to hear. Uh, but really, as Christians, our bottom line should be, what does God tell us? Right? Like, like, You know, our conceptions of science, um, as, as good as good as science is in its pursuit, as, as much as the fact that it was, you know, Christians who instituted the modern form of science as we know it, with the intention of thinking God's, or finding God's thoughts after him, right? Like, thinking God's thoughts after him was the reason for it, was, God, I know you did this, now I'm curious about how, y'all follow me so far? Um, As that was, you know, as that was done, there was still this humility of, yeah, but what God says or the way God did it is is the ultimate authority, not anything else. But I'm just saying it's really interesting as a priest that sometimes there's, people want to put on you a need to say, yeah, but what does the literature say? You all follow me so far? Now, praise God that they match up, you know, so it's just like, well, these two are in sync, right? Because truth is truth. But anyway... I bring that all up to you because in the context of listening to what God tells us to, it sh- that should be it, right? Period. But that's that's kind of hard for us to live that way. Would you all agree that that's difficult? I mean, you all have an area. Every every one of us in here has has a recurring issue or recurring sin or recurring um, character flaw or a recurring poor way of relating to other people that contradicts what the Bible says. That's a habit that, that we need to hold up against the word of God, and the word of God should be sufficient, because God proves himself as we live that out. Period. And, when we don't, things go f- poorly for us. They just do. It's not karma, right? It's not, it's not karma, except that that word has been the, con- the Christian conception of that has been co-opted. But, um, anyway, so, when God says, march around a city seven times in silence, or march around a city seven times and blow a horn, or, you know, you just do it, right? Y'all follow me? I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of the lesson here. And you don't just do it because there's a, there's a rational way of thinking in which this makes sense and you can't see it. You just do it because um, you're demonstrating faith and God is present in the result. There's a difference there. Y'all follow me? Like, there's a, there's a difference there. Sometimes there is not a rational reason that you can point to. Shellfish laws in the Old Testament or not eating animals with, with cloven hooves. People have been trying to say, well, that was because of dietary restrictions. There's no evidence of that. Sometimes God just tells you to do something and you do it. Y'all follow me so far? Um, but boy, is that a really difficult lesson. So, um, and if you wanna read some really crazy stuff, by the way, um, read, read the, in, I think it's in Numbers, the ritualistic laws of cleansing a house from mold. If you wanna get into a really like, God, this makes no scientific sense to me, but I have to get on board with you, research that one and let that rock you a little bit. It's bizarre. All right, so, let's continue on. Yes? My
0: uh, uh, Bible refers back to Deuteronomy uh, 20, which may explain uh, uh, the uh, the reason they marched around the city. Uh, one of the things that's recommended in Deuteronomy, is that when you draw near a town, to fight against
1: it, offer terms of peace. Now you, you are know, two points. You are two points ahead of me, Bill. and I like it. Keep going. But
0: um, if you can imagine yep. a a uh, caravan mm-hmm. walking around the city uh, just once, and then it's twice. Um, trying to be uh, peaceful, waiting for a representative from those inside the city to come out and see what's going on. Yep. So they could offer peace.
1: Yep. But they did. Exactly. And I think
0: think that's what Deuteronomy uh, uh, explains. It also talks very definitely about uh, trusting
1: the Lord. Oh, there's a lot of ties to Deuteronomy. Yeah, and yeah, what, what Bill, so what Bill's referring to is one of the reasons that they marched around is for the sake of the occupants inside, and uh, we're referring to Deuteronomy twenty fifteen through 20, and so I'm going to go ahead and read that to you all briefly, so you, you can join in on this conversation, um, and that's a great point, thank you for bringing that up, Bill, um, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 15, Actually, well, I'll start on verse 10, and then I'll jump to 15. When you draw near to a city, this is verse 10, to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably, and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you, and shall serve you. But I'm not talking about slavery today. I don't have time. Um, I'm just letting you know. We can talk about that another time, not today. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And then... Uh, Actually, I'm going to read this section because this is relevant to our entire passage. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Uh, Moving down to verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices. By the way, guys, put your finger in this because we're gonna. T- this is what we're gonna end talking about is this whole concept right here. That's how we're gonna end our session today. So put your finger in this spot. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So put your finger there. We're going to come back to there in 20 minutes, okay? But we're going to get, we're going to get right back to that passage. So the beginning of that passage, thank you, Bill Shanklin, is one of the reasons that we can think about them marching around the city um, other than pure obedience to God. And, and the ritualistic ceremony part of that is primary to the making peace because if it was making peace, you know, it could be as simple as knocking on their gate and sending a messenger, right? Right. Um, Part of it is giving them the opportunity to join them and repent, as Rahab chose to do. Uh, And so her family was spared, as you'll see. Um, And part of that was uh, out of ritualistic obedience to the Lord. So, um, and this is also, let's look at verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days." On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword." Uh, I'm gonna pause there for a second. So one interesting thing about this is that Rahab, Rahab was spared destruction because she indicated, as you might see in chapter two, I think it was like a scarlet cord that was placed outside of her house that let people know where her house was. Does that sound familiar to you? Where does that sound familiar to you? The Passover the scarlet marking on on the doorpost right that saved the people from destruction to say you know we are we are yours um, and that again that is what's fascinating about doing these studies and reading the old testament is you you pick up on all of these different themes that are going on throughout right it's not just you know when people say that this was written by infinite um, writers and redactors and editors and piled together into this jumbled mess it's like well there's a whole lot of Internal consistency and a clear narrative structure to have that many hands on it, uh, you know, and, and make it something that actually makes sense. It's bizarre. So, what is it that justifies Rahab's survival? She Does she save the spies? Right? She hid the spies. She, um, she kind of submitted right to the Israelites and, you know, joined forces with them. And to Bill's point uh, from Deuteronomy 20, you know, you, you wonder what would have happened, what would have happened if the city had welcomed the Israelites rather than shut them out and you know and um, declared war against them. And it's a really tricky thing. And here's why I ask that question: Why? What do you guys think would have happened? And so here is here's where we have some tension, right? Rahab is a Canaanite, right? She's a Canaanite. She's a Canaanite foreigner who then um, joined the Israelite tribe. But as we read in Deuteronomy 20, right, if any other foreign tribe the Israelites were to give the chance to spare, but the ones they were to put all, you know, entirely to the sword were whom? Those living in the land, the promised land, the Canaanites, right? And the Jebusites and the Hittites, but they're all kind of part of the same grouping. And we, right, the only way to really understand how. God knows everything is kind of Augustine's conception that God is outside of time. I know Father Chris talks about this a lot. You all all know what I'm talking about, right? Like, God is not... God can enter into the timeline, um, but He is also able to interact in both this place and in this place and in all the places in between. It's confusing. Don't try to understand it. I can barely get a concept of it. Um, But... What's interesting about this is it's kind of like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right, it's like did God know that the Canaanite populations were so hardened that they would not repent and that they would be a thorn in the side and that rather than Israel incorporating them into itself and then transforming them into godly, um, into people of God, that instead they they would just be a source of corruption Um, I would answer probably, yeah. God probably had some foreknowledge of that because God has foreknowledge of all things. Y'all follow me so far? And so that's that's kind of a way to synthesize those things. It's like, well, you can give them the opportunity to repent, and in fact, God gives us all the opportunity to to repent, but not everybody's going to take it. And you could make a case in Scripture that God knows that not everybody's going to take the opportunity. Right? I mean, like, God, God knows that not everybody's going to take the opportunity, and yet Jesus died for the sake of the world, right? Um, so, and we are going to get into the things devoted for destruction. What I'm going to do is we're going to finish off this passage um, with talking about, you know, we really just going through the passage, and then we're going to go back to what does it mean that all of these people were put to, the, that everything that breathed was put to the sword. Y'all follow me. I know we we keep touching on this past, you know, we keep touching on this subject. Uh, we've touched on what like three or four times in the session so far, um, not today's session, but in this in this time period of E100. But we will go back to it. So, do y'all have any other questions or thoughts about um, the Canaanites um, giving them the option to be spared, but then sparing Rahab? Yeah, absolutely. So there was trust there. Um, yeah. Yeah, and to go
0: to Jim's point, the Lord did not want intermarriage because he wanted to keep the years of your life
1: secure. Yeah, and so, yeah, and it wasn't a matter of, okay, so a couple things on that. Um, one, absolutely trust, right? And what, are, what? how much would your prayer life be transformed if your prayer life was primarily, Lord, what do you want me to do? And somebody should. Right? Yeah, like, or or you know, you you read, you know, 98% of everything God's ever going to tell you is right here. Right? I mean, it is. Like, even if you have one of the most richest, rewarding prayer lives of all people, um, you know, to say, well, God doesn't answer me, or God doesn't speak to me, or God doesn't direct me, it's just like, you know, okay. Um, I, you know, what do you do with that? But, um, you know, I'm gonna Yeah, I will circle back to that really quickly, that importance of saying, okay, God, what do you command me to do? And then to live that out. It's, boy, is that healthy. Um, that doesn't mean that prayers of petition aren't important, but boy, is that healthy. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? I will be obedient to you. Try that Try that for a week, actually. I'll do the same thing. And we can talk, uh, we can talk next coffee hour, but that's phenomenal. Yes? Doesn't the commander of the Lord's... <clears throat> So the commander of the Lord's army, and that's what we're getting at... Um, it is possible. It's also possible that, and angels are really actually kind of tricky because some angels we think of as having their own persons and personalities, right? Um, but sometimes the angel of the Lord is like the most ambiguous kind of character in the Bible. Is it, you know, is it Jesus Christ, you know, kind of pre-incarnation? Is it um, God? Is it an extension of God? Um, you know, like a manifestation of God in a physical form? Is it, uh, is it a specific person that, that would be an angel? It's, it's just a difficult question. Um, we, yeah, he could be there to, to, to see his faith. He could also be there just to give him specific verbal instructions on how to proceed. Um, that's absolutely another option. Um, and as a commander of the Lord's armies, the Lord himself, God himself was called the Lord of hosts many times in the Old Testament. That's one of his designation is the Lord of hosts. Um, therefore functioning as the commander of the Lord's armies, then that's why it is, it's a tricky thing to pin down. But these are, I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question. Um, all right, so let's, verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brother and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Um. Any thoughts on that? Any questions about that? He goes out, they save Rahab, they gather the treasure, and everything else was put to the sword and burned. Um, and then this curse is actually really interesting um, so there is let me see if I can find it here. I think it's I think in my notes it's first Kings 16. Um, Because we know that Jericho was rebuilt, we know that biblically and we know that archaeologically that Jericho was rebuilt. Look at yeah, there it is. If you're using the same Bible I am, it's page 298. Otherwise, and uh, in addition, it is First Kings chapter 16, verse 34. First Kings 16:34. 1 Kings. 16, 34. Uh, 1 Kings Chapter 16, verse 34. So this is during the reign of Ahab. And I'll go ahead and read it out loud. In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, forgive my pronunciation, Segub, According to the word of the Lord, which He spoke by Joshua the son of Nun, isn't that fascinating? How many years later is that? I mean, I mean, everything has happened after that, right? The the Davidic dynasty rose and fell. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's you know, that's that's a long period later. But that curse, that curse that you know, Joshua said came, you know, came true. Um, and again, and the Bible's often very specific when it talks about the people that, you know, the Bible is not shy about talking about specific people or places or times or things in history because it's true. That's why, you know, that's why, again, we have to talk about this a lot, but it's not mythology, right? Mythology is, you know, the epic of Gilgamesh, right? Like, um, mythology is uh, either fictional names and places and times or it's fictional... Um, names and events and times in real places that are kind of taken over, but, but they're, you know, they're clearly they're not supported by any extant literature, they're not supported by archaeology, right? It, it's purpose, like, people who write mythology knew it was mythology when they were writing it, and the people reading it knew it was mythology. You all follow me so far? Like, it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise. This is historic. And the Bible's not shy about naming names. And that includes in the New Testament with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those who saw him in the flesh. Written written at the point where you could still go ask those people, right? Hey, you saw Jesus? That's fascinating to me. Eyewitness eyewitness testimony? It's fascinating to me. But here we have it again. Um, You know, God, you know, something, uh, a curse is pronounced and a curse is upheld on the city. Um, So... At least 300 years later, which is just—it's interesting to me. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Still exist as a place? I don't think so. Does it? By that name? While we were there. <laughs> is it by that name? I didn't know that. My knowledge of biblical history goes up into the point of like 2,000 years ago. So, if you ask me anything more recent than when it was written, I don't have a damn clue. Um, hey well I've never been to the Holy Land um, yeah I haven't uh, are you really a priest if you've never been yeah Jericho City is a city in the Palestinian territories located in Jordan River West Bank right that's fascinating that that's still, that that's still around by name isn't that amazing See, this is why I love this. I get, to, I get to learn something every time I'm up here, and I tell you what, that is a blessing for me. Um, how, how cool is that? All right, so we've got a few minutes. Um, let's talk about the destruction of all of these things. Unless there's another point that you all would like to touch on, is that how you'd like to end our last session and our time together? Because that's what I prepared for, and if you've got a, you a curveball, I'll do my best. And I've got Google. So, yes? That's a great point. And that's, that's a question that people have is, what is this treasury, right? Because they're nomads. The yep. Yeah. So what does that mean to have all this gold? And it's a really interesting thing. It's, right, it's like, if you're a nomad, um, and you, I mean, unless you're going to be using it to trade for supplies along the way, but if you're a nomad in hostile territory, what the heck do you need precious metal for? Right? Um, the original reason that we discussed was for preparation for the Ark so it could be gilded, etc. There is obviously no concrete place for the Lord's treasury. It's not a structured building. That doesn't happen until much later. So why do they have it and what do they need it for? I, I don't have a clue. Um, but I do know that they hold on to it and it is something that they end up putting into the Lord's treasury. Um, but you would again, you would think that precious metal would be something that would be kind of useless to a people group in that situation, but God commanded it, and they said, okay. So, oh, that's interesting. So one of the, one of the purpose. so uh, so Joshua was the one who took over for Moses, and we discussed two weeks ago that when Joshua took over, you know, it was kind of like he had yet to prove himself, right? There was this, there was this period of proving that he kind of, because Moses was, you know, designated a servant of the Lord, which is the highest title that you could have, And Joshua was designated Moses' assistant, which is not the highest title you could have. And so um, so there's this period of preparation and a period of proving that is taking place here. And the point was that um, this was really a proving moment for Joshua. And it was a proving moment not in his military exploits, because that was kind of already understood. But, you know, again, the whole point of this is, is it's not primarily a military expedition, it's primarily a ritual ceremony because God is the one who primarily takes part in the the Mojar expedition. So this is, Joshua is faithful. Right? Joshua is faithful. And that's why we see in verse 27, to your point, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Um, Which again, if you're one of these neighboring Canaanite cities and you see this band of nomads take down Jericho, which was likely the most fortified city in that area, that's a big deal. Um, so, yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. So let's talk about this idea of devoted to destruction. And I, as you know, so when I studied Hebrew in seminary, it was, uh, I took online classes. And so my understanding of the verbal pronunciations of these words is as good as everyone in here, uh, minus uh, Sarah Shanklin. So I cannot, I cannot do it. Um, I cannot do it. I can write... I can write the English version, and we can all kind of guess. Um, but what's really interesting about Hebrew here, because you, you kind of saw in verse 18, it kept going, bouncing back and forth between things, uh, a thing for destruction and a thing devoted to the Lord, or a thing devoted to destruction. You saw those words back and forth. You'll remember that in the passage. Um, devoted, they, they are all actually come from the same root word. Devoted things and um, things set aside for destruction actually come about from the same root word. Um, So devoted things in English is harem. And yeah, this is actually great. This is one thing that none of you can correct me on. So uh, I know better. Um, I'm just kidding. So kind of, so here, and then we have, right? Do you see how close those words are? So again, when we don't read in the original language, we miss a lot of these plays on words, Um, but the devoted things are harem and the things, the things uh, so you will not bring about your own destruction, haram, sorry, let's get that right, haram, um, by taking any of the devoted things, herem, otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction, herem, and bring trouble on it. Um, so, it's interesting to think of things being devoted to the Lord as things being destroyed. Uh, we know scripturally that, um, like, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. Now, there are some ways that that makes sense, right? If there is something in your life that is causing you to sin, destroy it, right? I mean, you know, if you, if you are a, you know, if you're addicted to to Netflix, right? Like, you watch eight to ten hours of Netflix a day, you should probably get rid of it. Um, that's not good for you, right? Like, you would destroy your interaction with that. You all follow me so far? I mean, there are things, there are certain temptations or things that pull you away from God that you need to destroy, not manage. Like, don't try to manage. If you could have managed it, you would have done it already. You just need to get rid of it, right? Um, so, so that's one way that we can think of it making sense that things devoted to destruction are destroyed. Um, but when it comes to people, we know that God is not a God of, of wanton cruelty or child sacrifice or maliciousness. Um, Canaanites were child sacrificers. I mean, you, you, you might have known that. Um, they were, I know I talked about this a while ago when we first brought up this, it probably a month or two ago, but these were not good people. Like, do you, like, Like, I want us to all be on the same page here. These were not, you know, you know, this is not like this was Vero Beach versus Sebastian, right? Or Vero Beach versus like Fort Pierce or something. No, you know, like like you know, th- these these were uh, these these shifting over there. Um, <laughs> that's all right, Rahab, come on in. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the uh, the um, you know these these were not these were not good people, um, and and they were child sacrificers. They they participated in barbaric acts, and there's a couple ways to think about this. One is, um, the reason that we saw in Deuteronomy 20 was that so that the religion of the Israelites would not be contaminated, period. Um, there is, I'm preaching this weekend, and as I was studying the passage in Hebrews that we're in, uh, I'm going to be preaching out of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, there's a portion of that where it says, you know, since we've been allowed into God's presence, let us uh, and one of the things it says is three. Let us like let us do this and this and this. One of those things is hold fast to, fast to the faith that has been entrusted to us, which which means the teaching that has been handed on to you and the traditions that have been handed on to you do not neglect those teachings. Y'all follow me so far? So there's this, there's this desire of purity and of keeping things true and biblical. Otherwise. You know, you you take a few. You all it takes is a few wrong turns, and you're not worshiping God anymore. You're worshiping your conception of God, and that's not good. That's not good for you. That's not good for your uh, for your progeny. That's not good for your neighbors. That's not good for anybody. Y'all follow me so far? Like that's. I know in an age of pluralism, to have religious purity is thought of in a negative way, but you know you get some weird stuff out there if you take a few wrong turns. And you all know that, right? Like, you get some, weir- you get some weird stuff. There are, there's a large segment of, large, relatively large segment of people my age who worship whatever the heck they decide to because they think it's funny and ironic and who cares anyway. So you get people worshiping the chicken god in their closet. And I'm not kidding about that. I wish I was. You know, you get people worshiping the weirdest possible things because it's like, well, this is funny and, you know, but we, you know, but I've got this impulse to worship, so I'll make myself a little altar in my room. And, you know, and it's just kind of like that. It's bizarre, um, but that's like, you, you know, you get a few different thoughts in there. You lose the purity of the faith, and all of a sudden, you are, you are way off balance. Uh, you, are, you are way out of sync with God. And so that's why, and this church at Trinity Episcopal Church, one of the things that's very important to Father Rodriguez and is very important to me is that when we evaluate theological teachings and instructions and when we look at Scripture and the authority of Scripture, we listen to the voices of people that came before us. Right? That doesn't mean that everybody who was, you know, who came before us as a Christian was always 100% right or 100% on the same page. The Church Fathers argued about things. But we listen and it, and it matters and it's important, Right? the concept of the democracy of the dead, the concept of um, not, submit, you know, not holding chronological snobbery, which we're all very tempted to do in an age of progressivism is, well, we know better than everybody that came before, when we have the highest rates of addiction, the highest rates of suicide, the highest rates of um, substance abuse. Like, we had, like in, if any civilization in history, right? We're not doing well. Do you all see what I'm saying? Like, we're not doing well, so to be arrogant and say we know better than everyone that came before is objectively foolish. Right? You all follow me? We're all on the same page here, right? Like, we're not doing well. So, to say that we figured it out and that people came before us and what they thought or what they believed doesn't matter is foolishness. It's patently foolish. So, anyway, I'm, I'm so boxing against two uh, of people who are all probably on the same box. So, that's silly. Um, but it's something I'm passionate about, right? Like, you know, when you're, when you're evaluating a new theological claim or argument, and you're, and you're doing hard research on that, don't just do whatever's come out in the last 20 years. You know? And then try to twist that to what you already think anyway, so nobody's convinced of anything. It's, it's a bad idea. Um, and, it, and it will show, by the way, if you make, if you make uh, extreme theological shifts, it will show and have implications on how you live. So... Have a minute. Um, I have so much. All right, I'll be. Uh, but I, but I'm gonna be. I'm am I'm gonna stay at. am gonna stay at an even pace so that I can cover the things that are that uh, need to be covered. Um, so purity of faith is way more important than you think, and way more important than I think, and it's way more important than you believe, and it's way more important than I believe. It just is. I'm trying to, to get my belief to match what's true. Does that make sense? Like sometimes you work yourself up to it. Purity of faith is incredibly, incredibly important for your sake and the sake of society and everybody else. That's point one. It's, it's, more, important, it's more important than the lives of those evil people that were around the Israelites. It just was. Um, point two. Israel has a, it may have a special place in God's heart, but when they disobey, they are put to it. Look at what, read after this, go, go on and read what happens in chapter 7. Remember God's admonition to not collect anything for yourself? Somebody did. And guess what happened? They got punished. And punished in a way akin to the way that these Canaanites just got punished, right? They were punished for it. Um, you know, it, it isn't that God just turned a blind eye to the sin of the Israelites. So, in the same way that Rahab repented and was welcomed in, Israel was disobedient and got punished by the sword for it. And and that's, by the way, if you go throughout his, Israel's history, God uses the swords of foreign nations to punish the Israelites for their misdeeds. Think about that for a second. Like that's, it's an important, it's, it's a really important um, concept for us to think about is that like, God is a God of justice, right? And that's, that's part of him being a God of justice. So, does it feel good? Like, should we feel good about the fact that, I don't know why animals are like the most sympathetic thing we can think of, right? Like dogs, innocent dogs have to die. Um, you know, or, or more importantly, innocent children had to die, right? Or, or, you know, one, they're not innocent. Nobody's innocent. The wages of sin are death, period. Period. That's what the Bible says. Um, but two, um, that should hurt us and it should hurt our hearts and it should hurt you in the same way that it hurts you when your loved ones make really poor decisions and suffer consequences for it. That's how it should hurt your heart. Y'all you follow me when I say that? Like, like do you all, Have you ever had any loved ones who made really bad decisions and paid for it? I would, get, I would wager to bet all of you at one point. Um, that's how our hearts should, should hurt for the Canaanites. Does that make sense? Like, it's not senseless, it's not mindless, it's not malicious, but it is painful, and it is hurtful, and it should be, unless you're a monster. Don't be a monster. Um, so, that's, yeah, that's, that's the point of this, don't be a monster. Um, all right, well, that's all I got. Do you guys have any questions? I mean, it's, it's, it's time to wrap up, but I can take, like, a couple questions, and then we're going to say goodbye to the E100, um, at least until the new year. So, anything else, anybody? Bill? Yeah. So, no, there's a lot. There's a lot to that. So, a couple of things about this, real quick. The Israelites. So, the Israelites didn't deserve it either, right? That was clear. We made that clear a long time ago. Israelites did not deserve it. They deserved the ways of death. God pointed them to be His people, which, as they followed Him, was a blessing. As they didn't, was a curse. Because when they didn't follow Him, they got it as bad as anybody else, if not worse. Right? That's kind of like being in a position of responsibility, right? Like, if you're, if you're doing it well, that's great, but it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Right? So, there's, so, it's not pure blessing. Israelites were, in fact, supposed to be that blessing for the sake of other nations. Um, God, could God have gone to other nations? Did he speak to them in certain ways? Well, Romans 1, when, when um, Paul talks about some things being evident in creation as proof of God's existence, there are also things um, that I would argue that are written on all human hearts, um, even pre-incarnation of Christ, that, that you know, some things are right and some things are, are too far. Um, child sacrifice is not something I believe that any natural person you know, says, well, that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, there, there are plenty of, you can do, anthropomorph- you can do anthropological studies um, and you'll find that child sacrifice is not a grossly widespread thing. I mean, yes, right, Aztecs, et cetera, but it wasn't universal. Um, so yeah, these were, these were really bad, really bad people. Um, and so sometimes, remember we talked two weeks ago about the reasons that God delivers punishment? One of remember Do you guys remember that whole thing? One of them was preventative, which is what Jim's point is, preventing, um, preventing the Israelites from being killed so that we could get Jesus who would then cover the sins of a multitude of people. So one is restraint, that's what it was, it was restraint. Uh, One of them might have been to be an example of, like, you know, to the surrounding nation. Sometimes God punishes to serve an example, which he said in Deuteronomy also. So when we get to the why, there are 14 or 15 different things. Um, I would say the primary one is simply that um, sin deserves anything, sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death, period. The fact that some people receive mercy, um, through the grace and act of God, is itself an incredible gift um, that we should unquestion- you know, unquestionably be thankful for. But it's a good question, and it's one that we, you know, that's one that we should wrestle with a little bit. Is um, and, I, and I think that's a fair thing to to bring up. But um, anyway, we have to go. Thank you all for your time, and um, yeah, all right. See y'all Sunday.
0: Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.